0: Now on to the podcast. Next up on the ABC podcast is Tampa Bay Rays minor league mental performance coach Chris Goodman. Chris had a phenomenal career at the University of Iowa and was drafted in the 32nd round of the 2015 draft by the Miami Marlins. After his playing career was finished, he got into college coaching and received his master's in sports psychology at Minnesota State. This is a deep dive into peak performance and player development. Chris works with the Rays minor leaguers, so he's on the ground floor of trying to help players achieve their goal of playing in the major leagues. This was a fun episode for me as I got to fire off some hard hitting questions to one of my former players. We do a deep dive into his time growing up as a multi sport athlete, the role his parents had in his development, the recruiting process, his views on player development, and what he's using with players to help with peak performance in the Rays organization. Let's welcome Chris Goodman to the podcast. Here with Chris Goodman, minor league mental performance coach uh, for the Rays, uh, but uh, played for me at Iowa. Uh, got his psych degree at Iowa and then played with the Marlins for a little bit and then coached at Minnesota State and now working with the Rays. So, Goody, thanks for coming on with me.
1: Uh, it's good to be on here, Coach B. Good to see you again. And like you said, played for you at Iowa, so it's kind of full circle here.
0: Yeah, no, I I, I always kind of knew you were going to do something in the game just with, with what your dad did, and I, I, I'm proud of you right now just because you never know, but um, our interactions were great. And I do want to go kind of go back just so people get a little bit of a, a dive into your path, but, um, you know, you did the NTIS. You actually played hockey in high school as well. and So Shocker, a multi-sport athlete, figures it out in college and then gets a chance to go play professionally. So just take some people back a little bit here and, and just your path.
1: Yeah, well, like you said, uh, grew up playing hockey and baseball and uh, being from the state of Minnesota, uh, the state of hockey is we like to call it, even though we haven't won a, a Stanley Cup yet. And speaking of Stanley Cups, the Lightning just won it last night back to back. So that's exciting for the city of Tampa, Um, but growing up sports, of course, were always a huge part of what I, what I did. And, um, my parents always pushed me to, to do what I wanted to do. Never felt forced, which was always nice. Um, I think as a kid, you always feel that pressure in a sense of just not wanting to disappoint your parents. Um, so I, I remember having certain conversations with my parents about, uh, wanting to play really well, especially when they came and, and visited when I was in college or in pro ball, and really it didn't. It, they wanted me to play well too, but it was they came to support, uh, and so that's how they had always been. And so that was huge for me. But
0: um, I mean, back then, up, back up though on yeah. that. I mean, growing up, how how were the conversations? I think that's hard for parents. You know, we we do get a lot of parents that listen in. And I think that's difficult to, to find that balance. With your child, like how much do you push to to get them involved? To so kind of talk a little bit about that, like their their involvement uh, with you growing up with the youth league stuff.
1: Yeah, I think it probably um, the classic answer. Of it kind of depends on every kid, I'm sure. For me, my parents sometimes had to almost like pull the reins back. I was super uh, sports focused. Uh, I didn't really get that interested in the academic side until I almost really, it was at a crossroads of, do I even get into Iowa? And and, and that was really um, like deflating for me because that was, I really wanted to, to go to Iowa. So I kind of had to kick it into gear. If I look back now, uh, I wish I would have done it earlier, uh, but that was one thing like, so maybe in the sense of my parents had needed to, uh, and they tried to support me more in like the academic side uh, because the sports, it was easy. Like I always wanted to be there. Uh, they always supported me in the, in that sense. and the conversations were um, were more on the side of probably not taking things so hard and continuing to to grow and that it's a pro it's a it's a process and and uh, just getting better over time.
0: Yeah, and and this is kind of the recruiting piece of all this. I didn't know if we were going to get you. Um, you know, I saw you at the Colonels Tournament. I think you are playing with the Minnesota Stars, if I if I remember correctly. You played yeah. like a morning game, and so that was my first time. I had heard your name, but that was the first time I saw you, and I loved you. You just thought you would be a – a really good college baseball player. Didn't know what position you were gonna end up at. I know you were playing shortstop at the time, but just you had reminded me of some guys that I had coached along the way because you were wiry and and new with your frame. You're probably gonna add some strength on. But when we got your transcript, I was like, okay, you know, that was towards the back end. You know, different times now. You're going into your senior year. Which hardly ever happens, but it all you know, I think it usually works out for guys if they can wait a little bit longer. But when, when we got your transcripts, I was like, Okay, we're gonna at least have to try to give him something to get him into school because you wouldn't have been able to get in on your own. And that's kind of that that recruiting piece that maybe people don't always see that that peek behind the curtains of, of who actually ends up at places and then I didn't know because the out of state in state piece it's a it's a lot to go to Iowa for an out of state kid, so I just didn't yeah. know. But then, you know, on your visit, you actually committed on the walk around, and I, I don't I don't even know if you talked to your parents about the whole deal, and you just kind of threw it on them that like, hey, I'm coming here. Uh, it was actually one of the easier recruiting trips I had ever had visits because even before you got to meet with Coach Dime, you were you were basically coming, so you made life easier on yeah. me.
1: Yeah, it definitely. I mean, well, I remember walking around uh, Iowa City and. It was just, and actually one of the, I tell kids this sometimes as well, when the recruiting questions come up to me is um, you gave me the advice is if baseball wasn't there for you, would you still want to go to school and walking around Iowa? It was a hundred percent wanted to go there. Um, and so I remember on the walk, just saying like, okay, how do, how do you commit somewhere? Obviously never done it before. So uh, it's just like, you want to be a, an Iowa Hawkeye. And it's just right there. I want to be an Iowa Hawkeye. And, uh, then I remember, but yeah, my dad didn't know at all, uh, that I was going to do that. I think we talked a little bit that Iowa I was special to us. But. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And your dad's from Fort Dodge, you know, so, so even though you guys lived in Minnesota, there was that tie for you guys because your dad grew up in Fort Dodge and you speak to that piece. And I try to tell kids this all the time and parents like find the right fit. And, you know, you went through coaching changes while you were at Iowa and I, makes it a little easier probably to stay even with a coaching change just because you chose a school for the right reasons. Correct.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: Yep. And, and I still try to push that. And I know I've been on the transfer portal here lately because there are so many kids in there, but for anybody that's listening in that has a kid that's going to go play any sport in college, look at the school first. I mean, look at the school first. If the school is going to be a good fit you know, is that kind of realistic expectation for, for athletes in college that it's going to be a little bit bumpy, correct? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that should be uh, the expectation. to be. You should expect it to be, yeah, you expect expect, it to be yeah. bumpy. You shouldn't expect it to be rosy. I think that gets sold sometimes. Like, everything's going to work out exactly how you want. That's not how it works. Uh, and that's kind of along what you're doing right now with the minor league guys. I mean, th- that's got to be those expectations, too, as a minor league baseball player, is that it's going to be bumpy along the way.
1: Yeah, hopefully that's the expectation. I think some guys have that expectation, but I think a lot of guys come in like, well, okay, I got drafted in this place. I'm going to bang my way through the minor leagues and I'll be in the big leagues in two and a half, three years. And like there's injuries that come up. There's um, just how minor league baseball works. Like, it sometimes or so many times it is right place, right time. Like, the, the systems can be stacked against you. And that's, I guess, where you play for all 30 teams comes into play. Uh, But, yeah, it's just I like to think it rarely goes exactly to plan. And that's why it's so important for us to be able to adjust not only in our physical abilities, uh, but also on our on the mental side and being able to regulate our emotions.
0: And, and Chris is very active on Twitter. So if you're trying if you don't follow him right now, it's at Chris Goodman K R I S Goodman uh, underscore. So he does a really good job of of tweeting out stuff. Um, you know, how has that helped with the guys that you're dealing with? Kind of get your message across to them.
1: Hmm. That, that's a good question. I don't really know uh, how it how it's gone for them. You might I might see a few guys here and there like a, a tweet, um, but you never, you never know if maybe some guys see it and they don't like it, but it might resonate. Uh, I think the biggest thing, how I even got into just tweeting because I had been on Twitter for a long time, but never really used it as that type of a platform. And while I was in grad school, it was a really good practice for me to try to stay concise and simple, Uh, And get my my point across on some of the things now, obviously, what is 140 characters max, something like that, Uh, there is going to be little pieces where there might be a question, which is great then. So hopefully, then it stems a conversation, whether that's on Twitter or in person.
0: And I do want to continue to back up a little bit here just with your time because you have such a unique story. You came in as an infielder to Iowa and then transitioned to the outfield. I mean, how was that transition for you, um, making that transition from the infield to the outfield?
1: I would say fairly easy. And I don't mean that in the sense of like it didn't take work, but uh, I grew up I didn't start playing shortstop until I was a freshman in high school for whatever reason. (laughs) uh, That was just kind of the decision that was made. And so I found myself as a freshman on JV playing shortstop and never really played there other than practices sometimes when I was growing up. So I was always a center fielder. Uh, My dad was a center fielder. So naturally, as a kid, you want to be like your dad. And so I was always running around trying to catch fly balls. Uh, And so the transition from uh, outfield to infield, particularly at a young age, was really, really hard. I remember making tons of errors. My first game as a freshman on JV, I made five errors Uh, and it didn't get much better as the year went on. (laughs) So that was a struggle uh, mentally. That's for sure. But yeah. So then in college, I just wanted to play. It was get on the field, impact the game, bring value to the team. Uh, and if that was in the outfield, I was all for it.
0: Do you think it helps to, to struggle earlier? I, I know I think it helped me as a player that I struggled in high school. Do you feel like it helped you once you got to college because you had struggled earlier? Definitely.
1: Yeah, there were a lot of things that uh, I, was, I started doing in high school on the mental side that I didn't know was the mental side. And that, that definitely helped me. Give some examples
0: I... on that. Give some examples of some mental side things that you were doing in high school.
1: Yeah, so uh, I go back to that freshman year when I was making at least an era game. Uh, And I'm the young guy on the team. uh, Not a lot of friends that I had that I just didn't play with any of these guys. So when I struggled, I didn't have anyone to go to at the baseball field. Of course, I had my parents. And that's where I uh, I started to write down on note cards what I wanted to be. Um, I wanted to make the routine plays. So I would, I would read these note cards every single night before I went to bed. Um, I make the routine plays, um, whether it was maybe even like technique wise, I feel the ball out in front of me. I see the ball into my glove. Um, I believe in myself. I believe I can make every play. And then on top of that, it was doing the extra work, the extra physical work. I don't think I would have got to where I did if it was just like the affirmations. Uh, They certainly helped, but paired with the physical work. So is that. And then I, my dad was always big on visualization. And so he would walk me through some of those, just visualizing before I went to bed a lot. Um, And so those were the two biggest things before I even got into college that definitely helped me in just being really, really intentional with my thoughts and what I was saying to myself.
0: And, and with the visualization piece, how were you going through that with the visualization piece? You know, because there's, a, there's a, a couple different ways for, for anybody that's listening in that hasn't done it or is thinking about doing it. There's a couple different ways that you can do it. One, you can actually see it through your mind's eye where you're going through it, but then actually you can see it like you're watching yourself on television go through it. So when you were visualizing, how were you taking yourself through that?
1: Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, For me, it was the natural view was through my own eyes. Uh, So, and I talk to guys about that sometimes of of just switching it and depending on what we are trying to do on the visualization side, um, maybe skill, more skill acquisition, or um, I guess in a sense, like just belief and confidence in, in your abilities more, just switching the view, but everyone has a natural view, I believe. And so mine was through my own eyes as if I was doing it. And so um just seeing really focusing on um seeing my, the ball hit the batter um and of course it's I'm in my own body and that at that time.
0: We get a lot of drill questions. What were some of the, the your favorite drills at Iowa when when I was still there? What were some of your favorite drills that we did?
1: Oh my gosh. Wow that's a lot that's a long time. Um <laughs> uh, <laughs> It's funny because I don't even, I try to think back to the the falls when I was still doing, and I did infield uh, practice every single fall and never played an actual game in the infield until my senior year. Um, so talk about just trusting a process in a sense and being ready for an opportunity. But I, I honestly, there, I, I think the biggest ones I can't, Particularly go to a specific drill, but anything that had to do with um, footwork—that—that that was We did spend a lot of time bit. on
0: on footwork. I mean, uh, cone work, you know, infield yeah. wise, a lot a lot of cone work, breaking down footwork, trying to get into good ready position. I, I still think that's where infielders get sidetracked is they don't get into a good consistent ready position every time on every pitch. That's where guys get caught in between on on balls is they're not doing that on every pitch. And then, you know, the, the hitting piece, I think that's where we got a chance to kind of break some things down after fall ball was done with just with the hitting piece. Do you have any least favorite drills that we did? Least favorite
1: drills? <laughs> I, I don't. You know, the, the thing is I think that hitting is so unique to the individual. Yeah. Um, and I was a big hands person. I really liked to trust my hands and anything that had to do with hands drills. I really liked now. I'm sure someone's going to listen and be like, well, that's probably why you didn't make it. Maybe, maybe it is. Maybe, maybe it isn't, but
0: uh, we did a lot of, a lot of one-handed stuff. We did. I I just was such a big believer in, in developing coordination with with the hands. And I know I'm a little bit of a throwback guy on that, but I, I think it helped. With PATH, I think it helped with back-to-ball skills. If you can get strength and coordination in both hands, I think it helps develop better back-to-ball skills, and I'm, I'll probably get run through the coals for that <laughs> now, but I still think there's some value to it. And, I, you know, we have some throwback. Tatis Jr. had a really good interview yesterday talking about moving around in the box and trying to keep his timing the same. And uh, I think we're starting to see some throwback approach. Talked about letting the ball get deep. You don't hear that a lot anymore. No. Um, talked about trying to use the other side of the field. Um, you don't see that, but there's a guy that doesn't strike out a whole lot either. And, you know, I think sometimes that approach leads to, to some back to ball skills as well. Right. Do you think, feel like you got pushed enough in college? I mean, you're, you're an intrinsic. You talked about that. I always felt like you had intrinsic motivation. So you're an easy guy to coach. You know, was that something that you have always had or was it something that your parents helped you develop? Because I I really felt like you were a a hard worker. You worked in the weight room. You worked on the field. You you worked extra. You know, when did that light bulb go on for you?
1: I want – the easy answer is it was always there. Um, And I don't know if there was a certain light bulb type of moment, but there was always – I can remember – I would consider myself a fairly competitive person. So even back in elementary school, I would get in arguments because uh, like, I just wanted to win and do whatever it was. So I think that was that intrinsic motivation of just doing what, whatever I could do to get better. And I, I, there's always a, I guess a shadow side to that for, for whatever our strengths are, there's a little bit of a shadow side. And, and sometimes it got in the way for me. Uh, But like on the playground and things like that, guys, my friends would be like, Hey, like, it's just a game. And my, my response was always like, not to me. Yeah. Like, it just wasn't to me. Like it, it was just meant a lot more. And so I think that just carried through. And I think that's where like my parents sometimes had to pull the reins back and that, Hey, yeah, you might have, you might've lost here, but where, what did you learn? Like, because now that piece is what do we learn here? And I think getting more into that intrinsic side of not just the winning and the losing is like getting better um, internally.
0: When did you know it was time to to hang it up? Oh, that's, that's tough. I I think it was just a point where
1: I was not even necessarily ready. I I don't know if you're ever, uh, at least I, wasn't necessarily ready to, to hang it up, but I did want to, to get on with my next dream, really. I, from the high school, my junior year in high school, I knew I wanted to get into sports psychology. I, I saw the e 60 with Ken Ravizza and Evan Longoria, and I wanted to know more about that stuff for my own career because I was like, well, I want to play in the big leagues for 20 years. Uh, this seems pretty important, but also when I'm done playing, that's what I want to do. Uh, so at that point in 2018, I actually started to pitch and pitched in Traverse City. Uh, pitching's hard, uh, if you didn't know. And so I, I had uh, a lot of failures in that. And then I was just, if I, I knew if I didn't get picked up by an organization, I was going to go to grad school. I got accepted during that season which is actually, to my knowledge, I learned at the time, it was really late when I applied. So a big shout out to Minnesota State University of Mankato's sports psychology program, uh, Dr. Sindra Kampoff uh, and Michelle McElharnon for accepting me super late. So I, I just had that kind of in the back pocket. And when I didn't get signed, it was straight to Mankato.
0: Was coaching in the back of your mind then too, or were you just going to go there as a student and, and, and then reach out to coach majors? And I mean, it's a good staff there with PJ, coach yeah. majors tank, you know, it's a really good coaching staff there.
1: Yeah. Uh, that was in the back of my mind because uh, ultimately I didn't want to pay for grad school. So I knew that uh, being a grad assistant would help out with that. And so, yeah, I did that kind of And fortunately, it's it's that baseball thing where it's a small world. My dad knew uh, Tink Larson. They had uh, kind of ran in the same circle uh, with some of the old-time guys in in Minnesota. So I reached out to him and got in contact with Moggs. And so, yeah, and they're a great staff, like you said. Uh, There was a lot. When I first got on campus, just being, like, uh, firsthand removed from the game, there was some bitterness Towards baseball, there was uh, not a lot of want to be around a baseball field. And that staff really helped. I don't think they ever knew it. Maybe they did. Um, but they really helped me from the sense of just how they came to, to work every day, how they came to the field, and then the players as well. Just seeing that really rejuvenated me. Because college baseball is a special place. And after you go through um, professional baseball, and it doesn't end the win the way you want it to, and it rarely does. But there, because that business side can really get you, and that. Yeah, speak speak to those
0: for, for people that don't understand that <clears throat> the difference between college baseball and then going to play professionally. That that what that is the differences between those two.
1: Yeah, for me at least, I was I was and still am a big team guy that's, I think that's why college was so great is that we were so close. Um, Those guys are my best friends to this day. We went through a lot together uh, and tried to accomplish something that was, and it sounds cliche, but that was a lot bigger than ourselves. And I don't know if you necessarily realize it until you're gone. And then particularly when you get into pro ball, because it is, it's one V one V one, everyone is just trying to go and make it. And, Yet you are teammates, but at the same time, everyone's kind of you're you're battling for a, ultimately a paycheck and a living. Uh, so that that was really tough.
0: Well, that was a special group you had that freshman class at Iowa. That was a a very special group. There was a lot of guys that got a chance to play after college in that group of of you guys. And I kind of knew I was excited about that group of you guys coming in because I knew. It might take you a little bit to figure some things out, all of you, and you play that many freshmen, that young, that early. You're going to take some lumps on the the one loss side, but I knew at some point you guys were going to do some very good things, which you did. I mean, it's you, regional team. I mean, there's not too many teams at Iowa that can say they're a regional teams. So, so, but yeah. I knew well, that. Was hopefully, a special, there's more of that. Coming. Yeah, for yeah. sure. And, yeah. But I knew just. As much time as I recruited the other guys in that class and and talking to you guys and the makeup, the mental makeup of that group, I knew that there was going to be some good things that happened for you guys.
1: Yeah, and like you said, it did take... There were a lot of, uh, like, some bumps along the way. and um, But, yeah, we were questioning it sometimes as well. It's like, are we ever going to be as good as a group as, like, we were supposed to be? And and so, thankfully, uh, we we kind of panned out a little bit in 2015 and we talk about it to this day, you know, how, how things could have, uh, kind of shaped up if, if, um, if one bounce went that way or one hit that way. And I think that's even the fun of it.
0: Well, it was a resilient group and, you know, does that help with resiliency? I mean, you, you had some tough times, but you also had a lot of experience at the college level, you know, from 2012 to 2015, you had a ton of experience. So how does that help you? Then you get to your senior year that, because you've pretty much seen everything that you're going to see up to that point.
1: Yeah, I think a hundred percent you've gone through a lot. You also have a support group that has done the same and is, has each other's backs. Um, I think even a little bit too, the um, like the self-determination theory of of competence, autonomy, and, and psychological relatedness, and so we had a lot of those components. Obviously, over the time, your competence builds. Uh, if you're particularly if you're doing deliberate practice, um, I felt like we had a lot of autonomy in what we wanted to do, um, and it, the university helped. Finally, I should say helped out as the facilities got better because then autonomy really comes into play. Um, I'm sure you remember when we only had the little, it's hard to get two hours. Page.
0: It's hard. It's hard to get a lot of work done in the winter time when you only get two hours in there and then you've got no other place to, to go hit. Um, and, oh. and I'm, I'm happy with the program there now because they have everything that they need. You can always get a little bit more in the stadium and all that, but from a player development's piece if you have a place that you can go in at any time and get your work in, makes it much easier for guys to get better over the long haul. Yeah.
1: Yeah, no doubt. I I can remember some of my favorite times in Iowa city were, uh, finishing some homework after a long, um, a long day of practice and and class and then going over to the indoor hitting facility and, um, hitting at like 10 o'clock at night. Like, and, and maybe you go with a buddy or maybe you just go by yourself, but, it was just the ability to go do that made a huge difference.
0: How long did it take you then to transition into coaching where you get the player knocked out of you? Cause I think it takes all of us a little bit of time to kind of get the player. And now I'm a coach and and I'm not going kind of back and forth where you still have a little bit of that player in you. How long did it take you to to make that transition?
1: Probably, probably the first year at, at Minnesota state. Um, but then even – I guess it would maybe even like defining what what that is in the sense of like getting the player knocked out of you because there are a lot of times when if we did early work, I might, I might meet with one player at Minnesota State and do early work, and we would do machine on the field at like 6 or 7 in the morning uh, before classes get going. And like I would jump in there and hit as well, like just as a little bit of break but also – like we would we would talk trash to each other and uh, just have fun with it. Um, so I mean, maybe someone would walk by and be like, "Oh man, Goody still thinks he's playing." And
0: I, I always um, felt it helped from a demonstration standpoint. Yeah, because I was still doing that with you guys. I still did it at Western. I would jump in there, and especially with bonding and and fielding, some of the things I still could could actually where it still actually looked like it was supposed to look. I just felt like it helped from a demonstration standpoint because players are visual learners. Uh, I just felt like it helped them maybe make a little bit of a development transition earlier.
1: Yeah, I agree. And, and even uh, this was my belief. I, I don't, of course, I don't work really on the hitting side anymore, unless there's the blend of approach and, and um, like mental training side. But for the hitting with me was that it would be, it it was hard for me to think, okay, I'm going to introduce this drill that I've never done before. So a lot of times I would like to try it out. Like, what's it feel like? What, what uh, verbal and um, what verbal cues help me in this drill so that maybe it even stems a better conversation for the guys that are trying to do the drill.
0: And that, that's kind of developing that mastery still you know, that, that mastery piece. Um, I I was the exact same way. If I was going to introduce something, core velocity belt or anything, we always did it as coaches, plyo throws. We always went through it first, just so I had a better understanding of of what I was trying to teach guys. Yeah. Who are your mentors then? You know, you talked about some of the the professors at at Minnesota State. Who are some of your other mentors in in peak performance?
1: Yeah. Well, um, our director of mental performance, Justin Sua is, probably one of the best mentors you can have uh, just a phenomenal human being, but also he's been in it for probably at least a decade now. And there are so many things that you just try to, to soak up and be a sponge whenever you talk to him. Um, I, I would say even uh, I, I tried to do a really good job of when I was in grad school of reaching out to a bunch of uh, mental skills coaches that were in the game So um, I I remember reaching out to Lauren Johnson, who used to be with the Yankees, and uh, she's phenomenal as well. Uh, Brian Miles, who's with Cleveland, he's great. And in every single person that I reached out to, they all, you know, it's interesting when you reach out to someone, like I reached out through LinkedIn or even Twitter at times, and I never got turned down. Uh, and time is a valuable thing. And, and I certainly have learned that as I'm in it now, because it is, you're on the go all the time, whether you're traveling or um, you're meeting with players before you go to the field. And then obviously, once you're at the field, you're there from two o'clock till 11. Uh, so time is really valuable. And, and they always gave me some time. And and that was really, really appreciative. Um IMG pretty much anyone at IMG within the mental conditioning team um, I still talk with them to this day and i moved down to Sarasota so um, I'm close to IMG now and and still hang out with uh, Taylor Stutzman who was my mentor there and and he works with the baseball team at IMG
0: talk about implementation now with the Rays you're in Columbia South Carolina right now so kind of take us through what the calendar looks like for you
1: yeah, so uh, just like day to day, it might be going to the course going to the field. Uh, when when uh, does your calendar
0: start? I mean, for you, when you're sending setting out your 12 month calendar, mm. when does that start for you?
1: Yeah, well, the, the interesting thing is particularly this year, just with so travel has been very interesting with with COVID. So it started out with uh, in in the beginning of of May, uh, I had to drive to all the affiliates because I wasn't fully vaccinated yet. So for, uh, I'd gotten my first vaccine uh, before the season started, but then you have, um, de- of course, it depends on which vaccine you got and that's not my expertise at all. So anyway, I uh, had to wait a period before getting the second one. So I'm driving from Sarasota to uh, Greenville in the beginning, then to Columbia, the Rome to Charleston, back home, then uh, back up. So, it was, and the nice thing is, really, kind of uh, to making our own schedule as a, as a coordinator group, and then uh, just trying to where do you want to be at at certain points, um, and with the six game series this year, you really get to to be with the team for a long time, uh, and I love it. I have two teams, Charleston and and uh, Bowling Green, and, and so I get to go back and forth. I see got these guys every other week uh, and you almost are really part of the staff, which is what you want. You, you don't want to be an outsider. You want to be in the mix and that makes things because trust is such a important piece of it.
0: Are you waiting for guys to come to you? Or are you going to them? How are you approaching? Um, you know, are you waiting until a guy struggles? Are you trying to help them maintain? How are you handling that piece?
1: All the above, but, it, it, timing for me is big you know I'm in the dugout during games so a guy who uh just punches out and maybe looked like he was very um internal at during the game uh during the at bat and things were speeding up though I might have that thought to me that's not the time to go and be like "Hey, man like what are you thinking then like uh I that's where not only being a player, a former player comes in. Like, I I think to myself, what would I want right now? Or not even necessarily what would I want? Like, what would I need at the moment? Maybe some space is is good. Um, Depending on my relationship with certain players, sometimes it's just um, like you might be sitting in the vicinity of them and they might look over at me and be, and then it starts right there. And, And so many times it's, it's not, like all mental skills. Um, there, there is that relationship relationship piece. And I think what sometimes happens to no fault of, of anyone's when we talk about the mental game is that it seems like it's so neat and packaged perfectly every time it's, it's really messy. Uh, there are times when you, I I might question myself of like, Hey, what, what could I give this player right now? What do they need right here? And then also, you never know how long it takes for that relationship to be where it needs to be, of being able to uh, like bear the weight of truth. Like, there's some guys that just need it flat out. Like, what we're doing right now isn't sustainable. Like, this is not how you stay in the organization long enough. And it's certainly not how you get to the big leagues.
0: I mean, how do you get them out of that internal? I mean, what are what are some of your go-tos? Say somebody's really, the wheels are spinning, they're sped up. What are some of your go-tos to help them get back to where they need to get to?
1: Well, I think first getting an understanding of, uh, like, what is speeding up to them. Like, some guys, they're like, I, I can tell that my thoughts are flying right now. There are so many thoughts coming in. Some guys are, uh, they're breathing. is. It, it was uh, sporadic, and then and then, and that probably goes a lot of times with guys. They're like, my heart. I could feel my. I felt like my jersey was moving, uh, and so depending on those, like I, I think the breath a lot of times is a great place to start for for many of those. Um, and for me, anytime the it's we're speeding up, we're gonna wanna really focus on the exhale and making the exhale longer as we get into we start to lock into the parasympathetic uh, nervous system and which the brake to our car.
0: I, I learned a new one. I've been studying this stuff for over 30 years and listened to Tim Ferriss podcast yesterday with a neuroscientist out of Stanford. But I learned a new one yesterday on the drive back home from work. I popped it in, take an inhale. And then at the top of the inhale, take another small inhale and then mm-hmm twice as long on the exhale and i've never done that but literally within two breaths i was like okay i feel different like in a good way and Mm. it had calmed me down and i had never even heard of doing the double inhale so like if you want to do it with me just inhale yeah then take another one and then and then a slow exhale and I never even heard of that. And I've been studying this stuff forever. But like, like I said, it changed the physiology within within two breaths. Which I mm, will use. That. I I'm going to add that into my presentation. You write it yeah, down. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, here. I need to look it up for people listening. And um, I got to get the guy's name right. He had a great story. Uh, had a really tough upbringing, and turned his life around. Um, yeah, Dr. Andrew Huberman is the guy's oh, yeah, name. Yeah. He's a He's a neurobiologist out of Stanford. He has his own lab, but he's asleep studies fear and sleep uh, mm-hmm. and I haven't listened to his podcast, but I may dive into it now but yeah that's he that was in the early part of the episode was the the double breathing piece which I'd never even thought of. Yeah. He had mentioned that the app reverie to um, reverie is a self-hypnosis app mm-hmm. um, that I probably will dive in just a, a little bit. I'm always trying to, to look into new ways to improve and especially help with the sleep piece. I mean, how, how are you? I mean, that's gotta be part of it for you. Sleep, nutrition, hydration, that all goes into peak performance. How are you helping guys with the sleep part? Because the minor league schedule is, is a bear. How are you helping them with that piece?
1: Yeah. I think the, the big piece on my end is kind of raising awareness to what, what are they currently doing? and, how is that affecting them? How could that be affecting them? Cause I think so many times we ask um, like, okay, how are you sleeping? And like, Oh, I, I'm sleeping well, I'm getting X amount of hours. And it's like, all right. And how is that affecting you? And like, Oh, I think, I think it's good. And, it's like, and I think the next question might be, why might you be wrong? Like, could you be wrong in that? And what if it's doing it a different way is better um, and not just doing the same things over and over. And, We're fortunate we have a lot of people um, on the dietitian side and and um, just rest and recovery and sports science. So um, I a lot of times urge players to to ask questions to those experts Uh, and then we all work together to to be better for the player.
0: And that's where skill acquisition comes into play too that that players don't realize is that if if you want to get those markers, because as you're learning new skills, those markers get set in your brain. If you don't get enough rest and even like spending 20 minutes with your eyes closed and and relaxing and breathing, that's a way to help with skill acquisition because it it allows with that neuroplasticity to to learn skills faster if you do that. So if you're not doing that – that's where players probably get frustrated because I'm, I'm doing all this work, but if I'm not getting the proper amount of rest, those skills that I'm trying to develop don't set in.
1: Right. Yeah. And I, I think of that at so many different levels, like think about all the the different distractions that are around players. Um, and, you know, whether that's in the minor leagues now, obviously the schedule is a little more taxing, but so many times if there's a distraction, guys are going to find it and they're going to do it if they, if they want to. But even on the college side, like there's, there's a lot going on and rest is not necessarily put at the forefront of a, a college baseball player's mind.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you know, you talked about team concepts. I think the Rays have that. I think it's a, a great example of an organization that still buys into the team concept. Is that carrying down to the, the minor league side of things as well?
1: I think so. Uh, you know, that's a, that's a tough question because, right, it's still the minor leagues and player development is at the top of the list um, for good reason. But I, I do believe that we have a really, really good group, groups of, of staff and, and players that are, that are, like te- that are team guys. Um, I think back to my uh, experience, and it is completely different. Uh, there are there are not many people that I'm that close with from my professional playing days, and, and that of course could be my own doing. Um, but I, I think we do a really good job of that. Now, what I say might be very different than what a player says, and so honestly, I try to get a good gauge of what the players think, and what do they what do they like what we do, what are, what do they think could be better. Now, the the tough part is they might say like, oh, I wish you know, this part of player development was better. Now I can't necessarily do, I'm not the decision maker in this, but it but is. That's to the tough thing. Cause to if,
0: if you ask the question and they come back, you know, this was like player meetings, you know, I, I would ask them like things. And then if they come back with something, then you've got to try to at least entertain the idea and, and try to at least show that you're, you're trying to help on that side, because then it's, you know, it, that's where that trust factor comes into play too. Is like, okay, I I asked the question, they gave me an answer, and now I got to try to, even if I don't know, I got to go try to figure out something for them.
1: Yeah, and I think one of the the big questions is for all the guys, and particularly the guys who aren't the high drafted players. For me, is do those guys feel valued? And, and yeah, those players are probably going to look at their uh, how many at bats and innings they're getting, but do what's the relationship like with the staff and the coordinators? Because I can remember when coordinators came into town, when I was playing, I would put money that they didn't even know my name. And that's not a good feeling. Uh, And and I'm, I'm really, really uh, passionate about that is that like, Cause you were one of those guys. I
0: mean, yeah, I was a
1: 32nd rounder like, and and same thing for
0: me. Like I was a non-scholarship athlete, but played, you know, I was a four year starter, but was a non-scholarship athlete. So I always wanted to try to make sure that everybody felt like they were getting time from me, no matter if they were going to play or not.
1: Right. Yeah. I, I value them as people and like their, their career is important to me. Yeah, because,
0: well, they might be your next round of coaches. I mean, you just never know yeah. what could happen. You want them to have a good experience because at some point they'll have an opportunity to get back to the game. So you want their experience to be positive and not, you know, you look at the numbers, not everybody's going to get to go play in the big leagues. So you, no. you still want them to have a good experience. You know, you, you tweeted out something about behavior changes. I mean, what is a realistic timeline if you're asking somebody to make some behavior or habit changes what's a realistic timeline for, for those changes and how do you help players not get frustrated when they're trying to, to make changes?
1: Yeah. Wow. Uh, I, that's a phenomenal question. And that's, that's the great part. Um, what we talked about earlier is that like, yeah, you, does it stem a conversation and to get into that, I, honestly, I don't know what's a realistic timeline. It, you know, it probably depends on the player. It probably depends on the behavior change itself. Um,
0: and how ingrained those habits people. are. You know,
1: right. That's
0: why I try to speak to habit changes. People want it instantly. We're in the microwave generation now. So they want, well, I did it for one day and now it should be better. Yep. Well, it might take you a month. It might take you mm-hmm. two months and you're dealing with players that could get released. So, you know, th- those are, there's that fine line of this may help them, but it may not help them too. And they may get sent home. So, I mean, there, you, you run that fine line with, from a player development side.
1: Right. And I think, you know, I guess different buckets of behavior change, if we're talking skill as the behavior, yeah, that, I think that can take a lot longer um, at times. And so it might be more, okay. On the controllable side of things, like, uh, maybe there are certain things that we can do, whether it's how they're talking, like what they say to themselves um, during a- an activity to get more effort. Like, don't let the reason why you get released be because you don't hustle. Like, that's a pretty, pretty brutal way to go out. Uh, so does what it? Ta- what's it going to take for you to-, to be able to run a, a great 90 every single time? Uh, and who, I don't know what it might be. It might be different for every player, but if it's thinking about like your family that might be affected by it, um, just pride in general, uh, and, uh, just playing the game the right way. Some guys, that's it, but probably the guys who, um, like playing the game the right way type of mindset, if they're not already running hard. Um, I mean, they probably do it already if that's like, the
0: mindset. How's that presented in, in spring training? I mean, because that's probably where a lot of it starts, right? Like this is the expectations of the organization for you as a player. Is that where it starts for you guys is in spring training?
1: Yeah, I think that's where you start to lay the groundwork uh, because you have so much time, so much more time. Of course, when you get into the season, as you know, it's just, it's go, go, go. And your, your practices are BP or right before BP. So it becomes a little more difficult, Any other but, indie
0: work? I mean, I, I, you're you're there. You know how much of it is is indie work when they're trying to help guys get better.
1: Uh, a good amount of it. Uh, I, I don't know if I could put an exact you know number on it, but a, a good amount of it is is individual work of uh, individual defense and um, you know certain guys with with stealing bases and, and base running. Uh, but there, I think <clears throat> when given those opportunities. Of course, it's really important on deliberate practice. We're not going to do it for a long time, but we still have to do it really, really well. Um, and that over, you know, little by little, a little becomes a lot is, is the idea.
0: So you're there at two for a seven o'clock game. So how are you lining up your meetings with guys? Is it open door policy or are you lining specific guys up?
1: Uh, both, you, you know, a lot of the times it is, okay, if I'm just getting into town, it is understanding what went on the last series, um, whether it's the last game or the, the full series with the player, the game reports, um, trying to get a, an understanding of where they might be. Now, the nice thing many times is that Mondays are off days. So they, if they had a bad game or a bad series, they might have that off day to kind of uh, do something that get their mind off of baseball. And so when they come back in on Tuesday, they're a little more refreshed um, is the thought. I'm sure it's not always with players, but yeah, there might be particular players that are pinpointed just to, to check in with and, and start a conversation. And then there's other guys who are like, we've texted, well, I've been with my, with the other team. And so they might straight, you know, come up open door policy type thing. And, and that's always an interesting thing is different players, are way more open and i don't mean it in the sense of like they share their their feelings their darkest secrets type of thing they're just like hey how do how do i stay positive after going over three with with two punchies?" and like it's just it's straight to it
0: what are maybe some of the key, keys to try to help guys stay more consistent I, you know People use the, you're not trying to, to fill cavities here. Hopefully, they get to a point where their performance is fairly consistent and improving as they go and staying away from a lot of those pitfalls with the results oriented piece. You know, what are some skills that you're trying to help guys develop to help them stay more consistent with their performance?
1: I think becoming uh, more conscious of, of what's or self aware of. Yeah, you of what said that. You,
0: you, you tweeted I, that out self awareness.
1: Yeah. So uh, I think journaling is a really big aspect of that and kind of following the progression. um, I I think of it, you have maybe in a sense like four quadrants here and you have players who are um, unconsciously competent in in the sense of like, they're good, but they don't really know why. And and I think that's majority of players. You have players who are, um, unconsciously incompetent. So they're they're not very good and they don't know why. And that's a very frustrating piece. The tough ones who, uh, they're prob- there aren't maybe too many guys in pro ball that are like this, but the consciously incompetent who are bad and they don't care. Um, so, but then the ultimate one, right, of being consciously competent, knowing you're good and you know why. And I think the journaling can help with that and move towards that a little bit more. This is what I did. This is what I learned. Uh, This is how I did it. Um, And this is what I'm going to do the next time.
0: That's why that time management planner at Iowa had the journaling piece in there, you know, and I didn't even know how many guys used it. I would look at it if guys wanted, I was checking more to make sure you guys could get on top of your daily schedule. But that's why that journaling piece was in there Just as an option for guys, you know, with their their green light, yellow light, red light, you know, anything. I I just think it helped them line up their day a little bit better. But then, to get things off their chest, because I also use journaling as as a hitter. I think it helped me stay consistent, but also could could talk to myself, could could talk to myself negatively, could talk to myself positively, but then flush it. I think we all need a brain dump now and again because if you don't your mind's going to be racing a million miles an hour so that was one of the things that i used a lot as a player was was journaling
1: yeah and i think even to the point of like okay what what do they do early work and like helping memory wise because we always think like oh i'll never forget this i'm in a good spot and it's like (laughs) no you're gonna forget it and then you might even forget the feelings that go into it so like bullet point it. it doesn't we don't have to write novels and I think maybe that for me, at least that's where it stopped me at times is I felt for whatever reason that I had to, like, it had to be perfect, uh, sentences and paragraphs. And now I'm writing an essay and it's like, just bullet point it. And then like, they're just, um, one word and go from there. And because we're not going to remember it a lot of times. And there's, there's kind of the, the two part there, obviously you have the external, storage where you can go back and get it. But then you have the encoding piece for our brain. When we write it down, that's why notes can be so important. It helps us actually remember it.
0: When guys get sent down, how are you dealing with those conversations?
1: Oh, that's, you, you feel for them. Um, I think for me, it is, I guess one of the big things is throughout my whole, you know, my whole career, however long it is, I never want to forget how hard the game is and what it was like to be in those situations.
0: And so a lot of the times it's, it's
1: not necessarily
0: um, – Or, even, hey, you still have an opportunity. Like, you, sure. hey, you didn't get released. I know it stinks you got sent down, but you're still, you still have an opportunity to play. Like they, they, they still ha- think you have value because you're still in the organization.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and I think if you have a jersey, you have a chance. Yeah. So keep, keep the Jersey on. Um, And I think it takes a little bit. That's certainly not the first thing that comes out of my mouth. Um, But it eventually we get to that point. You know, the first part that I try to do is just be a good listener uh, of what is going on for them. Um, Not only on like just their own, like it sucks that they got sent down, but I think there's a lot of embarrassment that goes into it. There might be some shame Um, Their their identity, for so many of us, our identity is wrapped up in the sport. So, and think, and this is something that I remember going through and um, and think about very often is because we have, social media is such a big thing in our life.
0: Everybody knows what now is if you're not doing well. Yeah, everybody knows. Yeah. Back when you, even when player. you were playing, and I was playing. If you had a bad game, like your family might know, but average Joe on the street isn't going to know it back in the the 90s and the early 2000s. They know now everybody knows if you had a bad day.
1: Yeah. And I even think about the player that isn't doing well when they go on Instagram and they're scrolling through. Well, it's like majority of the people they know are playing baseball as well. And so I remember looking, I would scroll through and I'd be like, man, this guy's in high A. I'm in the GCL right now. Like this is Like everything's going well for him. And that just wasn't a productive mindset. And I think about like how many of our guys are doing that. Now, ultimately it led me to um, get off of uh, particularly Instagram. I have Instagram, but I don't use it as like a personal thing anymore. Um, That's something I wish I would have done. Well, yeah, Nick, Nick
0: Castellanos, that was early in the year. He got rid of his smartphone because of it. You know and, yeah, and, and how do, how do you help guys get away from those social comparisons? I mean that 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 by human nature you're gonna compare yourself. How do you help guys work through and and stay away from some of those social comparisons?
1: Yeah, I, I think it's understanding like, when does the comparison help you because I think for some people and for probably many people, that comparison drives them at times yeah. and then the comparison steals from them as well. And like, okay, when is it stealing from you? When it is stealing from you, let's, what can we do to move away from it? If that's setting timers on your phone to make it a little bit easier. Okay. Let's do that. Um, But it really, I guess all goes back to uh, that understanding and awareness piece.
0: And and does it help your performance? I mean, look at Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan was driven by extrinsic factors. Like his entire Mm -hmm. career was driven by other people, Uh, He wanted to be better than everybody else. He wanted to prove everybody wrong. It helped his performance. That's not always the case for everybody. So I think that's that's trying to figure out who you are as an individual is I can allow extrinsic things to drive me if it helps my performance. If it doesn't, then I have to figure out something else that helps drive my performance.
1: Yeah, I think that's probably one of the biggest pieces is learning to who you are, understanding yourself. And going from there, like not only like what drives you, um, what what allows you to be your best, and not only on like what what are you doing every day, but how are you coming to the field? And because I think sometimes guys they go from one pond that you know college or high school, and they were the big fish. They come here, and everyone's kind of a big fish. And sometimes guys are a little bit bigger fish than than them, and so they kind of like sink back and they don't really let their own personality come out and then they're walking on eggshells and that's a really tough place to play and, and so like being comfortable with who you are and now obviously we grow free to fail I mean, so, you, yeah. you
0: got to get to that point where you're free to fail with your performance mm-hmm. and you're just gonna let it hang out but that that's tough because because guys do get guarded Cause there is some judgment and some shame with, with bad performance if you allow it. Um, right. You know, and that's where you're hopefully developing a little bit more of a growth mindset, but you know, it, it's tough in professional baseball. It's the, the whole thing is, is hard. How, how do you help guys develop letting it go? I mean, he, say you had 0 for four with four punch outs or you walked the, the ballpark. What are some skills to develop that allow you to, to let go of those poor performances?
1: Yeah. Well, we try to have like a physical release Um, a productive physical release, I should say Um, not like a bat slam or helmet throw type one, but trying to have one. Now for me, perfect world is from probably at bat to at bat, maybe even pitch to pitch release, but particularly after a game as well, good or bad, like we have to move on. So if that's finding the fact that when I take, when I finally take the Jersey off, then it's done and I've moved on, but I think the uh, key piece in any of those, uh, releases is the reflection aspect of it. And obviously if it's pitch to pitch, it has to be very, very quick. Um, and so that might be more of just emotional regulation. Um, and, but okay, what did we learn from this game? Good or bad? Like let's win from, let's learn from our wins and our losses. Uh, and then like, okay, uh, what did I do? Well, what did I learn? What am I going to, what am I going to do tomorrow? How am I going to do something tomorrow? And then once I've – if it's the jersey or it's the hat, once it's off, like, we've moved on. Um, Do you think that's – Finding those and that's – Do you think it's a little
0: easier at the minor league level because they're playing more games at the college level?
1: You probably have more, like, time to test it, you know, like, trial by error. Um, And I think – I guess maybe even – and This doesn't make it easier, but maybe just more important from on the college level of why fall ball can be a really, really big piece is that find these things and develop these systems because the season is really, really short. Right? You don't have so much time to figure stuff out like it is what, a 56 game season. Like let's go. You got to get going.
0: You got on this at a young age. I did, too. So for any of the parents or or younger players that are listening in, where's a good place for them to dive in on some resources for getting into the mental side and peak performance?
1: Yeah, I'm a really, really big fan of Heads Up Baseball. um, By uh, I remember you reading it on the bus. Yeah, yeah, that and um, The Mental Game of Baseball by Harvey Dorfman. So, yeah, those were, those were always really, really big for me. I I love Heads Up Baseball because it's very uh, easy to read and like, and very actionable. Um, They, and they have, and, you know, Ken puts a lot of different quotes from, from different players in there. And I think that helps buy-in. Like when I see my favorite player, Derek Jeter talking about it, like, Oh, this guy uses it. I should probably, you know, develop these certain aspects. Um, those things, I I think also just thinking differently in, in how you do things. So I I've started to read more books on, um, decision-making. So like how to decide by Annie Duke and thinking in bets also by Annie Duke. I think those books now, um, maybe not super young age, but as you get older, um, maybe even high school, just understanding like how we think and how like our cognitive biases that come in and uh, that's habit that's habit forming stuff
0: too um wendy wood is a great follow on habit changing um for anybody listening in wendy wood is an unbelievable follow her books are great she just had a she sent out a, a research project uh yesterday that i printed on on habit changing she does really good with trying to get people to change habits quicker and here's a way to actually do it. So she's big on habit stacking, big on fresh start effect, um, which I I think this has some applications for minor leaguers. You get them from high school, you get them from college. They're completely thrown into a new environment in the minor leagues. So you might be able to help them develop some habits quicker because their environment's completely changed. And that's how humans make habit changes quicker is by their, their environment being completely disrupted, just like a high school kid going to college, you can get with them and have them make some changes quicker just because their environment's completely changed now.
1: Yeah, that's funny you mentioned that. So I took a IO psychology class um, in my master's, so industrial and organizational psychology. And our professor was telling us a story how he was hired to come into this, I think it was kind of a manufacturing firm And for whatever reason, this company had a problem with their employees running down a hallway at the end of the day. I don't know why they were doing this. These are adults, Uh, but they tried a bunch of different things. You know, of course, the obvious put up signs that said, don't run, Um, you know, caution uh, pieces out there didn't work. So they hired him to come in. And what they ended up doing was putting mirrors along the walls in the hallway, And what they figured out is that people don't like to see what they look like when they run, they completely changed the environment. So now people walk because they don't want to see themselves running. And so I actually told that to one of our players, like ultimately to get to the point, like how is your environment affecting you right now? How is your environment affecting how you're training? And can you change some of the environment to make it a little bit easier for ultimately these habits to be formed?
0: Do you have a fail forward moment? I ask everybody this. Do you have something that you thought was going to sidetrack you, but looking back now is one of the best things that ever happened to you?
1: Probably many, but the biggest one is probably uh, not getting as far in baseball as I wanted to. It, it was a, a difficult thing to, to handle, but I've realized how much it's helped me in, in everything that I'm doing now. Um, so that, that's probably the biggest one. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's I, I've had a bunch of those as well. I mean, you're, you're still fit. You're in great shape. What about any early morning routines or evening routines, uh, that you do that you like?
1: Well, I I try to stay on a consistent sleep schedule, which it's, it's difficult at times, of course, with travel. Take us through
0: that. So, I mean, what, what are you trying to get hours-wise, sleep-wise? I'm, I
1: really try to get at least seven and a half. Yeah. For, for me, that's um, about good for I me like too. seven
0: hours and 20 minutes. I've said that a bunch. I had a behavior mod class. My one of my last classes when I, I got into coaching, I had two classes left to finish. Behavior mod was one of my last ones. So I tracked my sleep schedule for mm-hmm. the entire semester. So that was my final project was. And seven hours and twenty minutes was was right, and it's still around that for me. If I can stay on that, I wake up. I'm usually in pretty good place. Uh, but how are you? I mean, how are you anchoring <clears throat> that? Because you might be at the ballpark till eleven or, or midnight. How are you anchoring that sleep pattern for you?
1: Yeah, well, well, I use I have it on my phone, of course, of like when I want to go to bed now the, the tough thing, I never let my phone go to, uh, like do not disturb, uh, just because I I won't always be available to the players. Um, there aren't too many times it does happen. Like I'll get a call at one in the morning and and that's, that's cool with me. I, that's part of the job I've accepted. Uh, and I, I want that, but yeah, I I think, you know, you, I definitely have times when I don't get it. I, I haven't met it. Um, and I, I, I do feel it later on in the day, but I am kind of on that schedule where no matter what, I'm, I'm probably waking up around 7.30 uh, each morning. It just kind of is happening now and then getting, in, getting the day going, of getting a workout in of, of some sort.
0: in um, early You do that as, the, soon as, you, as soon as you wake up? So uh, I try to eat right away. So you, eat, say, you yeah. eat before you work out? Yeah. yeah. I try to hold uh, try off- to, I'm old now, yeah. so I try to hold off. So I I get up, um, do my early morning meditation, walk, uh, do a lit- light workout. It's nothing serious, but then I'll eat after that. I just feel like I'm I'm more aware if I if I eat later. Um mm. you know, they're just a couple of life hacks that I've developed along the way. If I get run down in the afternoon, I will do an afternoon meditation for like ten minutes. Yeah. To try to reset. Yeah,
1: then that's yeah, I, I'm, I do definitely try to, uh, at least I know I get one mindfulness practice in a day. And, um, I use, uh, an app, uh, the inner balance app by HeartMath. Okay. And so um, I put the, there's a piece that clicks onto your earlobe and, um, I can see my heart rhythm patterns. Is in, that what in you're following? Kind of,
0: so, so with that, with the inner balance app, that's, it's taking you through your, your heart rhythms.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm trying to get a a nice sign wave um, and have it repeatable and and get into coherence, which is just the synchronization of uh, thought, heart and and, uh, emotions. That's cognitive behavior
0: training almost is what that is. You know, that's, that's a good piece. That's something that not a lot of people do, but the cognitive behavior therapy piece helps make a lot of changes for people. Yeah, I, I
1: feel like it, it does a really good job of helping me quiet my mind and, and ultimately uh, you know, creating clarity. And I, a lot of times I come out of it and I have a good idea um, of what I want to do and, um, you know, going
0: throughout the day. I say it all the time. I got way more creative, um, still helps me. Like, even though I'm not coaching now with the podcast, I'll come out of it and I'll have better questions. Mm-hmm. After I get out of it and more creative questions because of it, I just think it's a way to, to, you know, Hugh Jackman said it. You're trying to get the monkey to to go up and down the pole. I mean, that's that's really what meditation is because if you don't, your brain's going to be all over the map. So you're really just trying to get the monkey to go up the pole and down the pole and up the pole and down the pole. And the the brain is a powerful thing. But if you don't give it those tools, it's going to do whatever it wants to do.
1: Yeah. And that's so many, that comes up in conversation a lot with players uh, particularly like focus wise. Um, But there are so many times when just the disconnection between what we do before we go to the ballpark and then what we're doing at the ballpark. Um, And sometimes guys are like, well, what, how does that have to do with, with baseball? And a lot of times I'll tell them like, well, the same brain that we communicate with that, we're walking around with is the same brain that we compete with. So if we're having a hard time focusing on just the conversations that we're having, there's no surprise that we're having a hard time focusing for the 15 seconds that we need to be for that pitch. And all the the things
0: you do before you get to the ballpark, lead up to a good performance. They, They do it with elite chefs, elite chefs, they lay out everything in a row. So the knives, they lay it out before they start to cook. Everything is laid out. So then they just go automatic and, and they do it. It's the same thing with our performance. And so when you're away from the park, you have to set up some of those routines that, that get you to that place that you need to get to in between the years when you show up. And yeah, pregame helps, but there's some low-hanging fruit throughout the day that guys, guys and girls can pick up. That help them, and yeah, it's it's an investment. It is being a good performer is a huge investment, but I don't care if it's a musician, a chef, athlete, theater major. They have those routines set up that allow them to be at their best when when they when it's go time for them.
1: Yeah, and consistency has a price, of course. Yes, um, but but yeah, the ones it, that make the, the with... ones
0: that make it. I mean, that's the separator. The ones that that are elite and make it. Those are the separators for them with their performance.
1: Yeah. I I think it's really interesting that I love studying elite performers, of course. Um, But I also love studying the like average elite performers if that makes sense well, right like what's your the cut average is? big G-
0: leaguers. G- give me a give me an example of an average elite because per- yeah you're elite if you make it to the big leagues you're you're elite yeah you're elite
1: right like you, but there's you, a difference between an
0: all-star me. and and a guy that maybe goes up and down every once in a while there's a difference so I mean what are you finding out with kind of the average elite? Performed. I think
1: that's I think that's the piece is that they're super consistent. They like, they don't have the unbelievable uh, skills to fall back on. They've figured out that they are consciously competent. Like they've figured out the fact that they have to do these things. They not only have to, but they want to because ultimately they want to stay in the big leagues. And so like when you look at the, I mean yes, like the guys like Dustin Pedroia were. Um, all-stars they became all-stars or like the Brock Holtz I think those guys are really really fascinating because uh, if you compare them to the one percenters of the one percent like they don't even they don't even stack up but what what how'd they get there because it's probably not their elite bat speed or their foot speed and their arm strength like they did something that they're very consistent Uh, I think they know themselves really really well and they, they do those same things over and over.
0: And they're really good. I mean what they, they're good at what they're good at. They are good. They're, they're yeah, good yeah, at what yeah. they're good at. I mean, and they they understand that, you know, you know, Pedroia is a really good example of that. Eckstein. Um, you know, even Jamie mm-hmm. Carroll played eleven years in the big leagues, had no business, and and I love him and I tell him that all the time. He was my college roommate, I had no business playing eleven years in the big leagues, but he did because he was good, really good. At staying within himself and being good at the things that he was good at, and not stepping away from that.
1: Right. So I think I think we should look at those people a little bit more. Um, not necessarily the outliers. Like, yeah, we can learn some stuff, some good stuff from the Mike Trout's and Tatis Jr. But there, there are some things that those guys do that I guess maybe for lack of a better phrase, like you just can't teach. Um, so I think we should. A lot look of it is how the eye-
0: eyeballs work. I mean yeah I, the more you're into it the more you know the your eyes are part of your brain so how those see how they work how they can can anticipate something moving in space that goes into it hopefully for me that's kind of where we're moving with the cognitive piece is getting a better understanding of brain development and this is the brain development for elite performers And there's probably going to be some similarities if you get in there and look at a brain scan that, okay, there, there's some similarities, even though their skill level might be a little bit different and their, their God given Mm -hmm. talents are a little bit different. That's the elite portion for all of them is, is how those eyes work. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. What are some final thoughts? Oh
1: man. Uh, final thoughts. I, I think the, what, what I ultimately try to help guys with, and it goes into everything, but, um, that is on the mental side, but just being an elite decision maker, um, understanding what goes into your decisions and, and having a process that allows you to make great decisions and, and quick, efficient decisions.
0: How can you streamline that? When you talk about decision-making, how can you streamline decision-making? Yeah.
1: Well, I think like looking at different, um, different groups that, that are really good at decision-making um, certain like parts of the military. And, and you talked about like chefs yeah. um, you, you look at um, surgeons who have checklists and, and they, they figured out what's the most important thing for them. And now this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to stay consistent in this. We um, I believe it is um, some fighter pilots in, in the air force and they use um, like OODA loop. So like observe and orient and uh, decide and act like they have the, this process of it. What are they taking in? What are maybe the biases that are going into the decision that's about to be made? They, of course, they make a decision and then they act upon it. So um, kind of going off a, a system.
0: All right, Goody. I appreciate it. Thanks for jumping on with me. Yeah. Thank you. It's always fun to reconnect with your former players. So proud of Chris and uh, what he's become and who he's turned into. Uh, You knew that he was going to be successful in whatever he decided to do once his playing career was over. Uh, He's a wonderful person, tireless worker. I had just a phenomenal time coaching him uh, at Iowa. So just uh, congratulations to Chris and all his success. Thanks again to John Litchfield, Zach Kale, and Matt West in the ABC office for all their help on the podcast. Feel free to reach out to me via email rbrownlee at abca.org. Twitter at CoachB underscore ABCA, Instagram ryanbrownley 17 or direct message me via the MyABCA app. This is Ryan Brownlee signing off for the American Baseball Coaches Association. Thanks, and leave it better for those behind you.